it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, we have a big hour coming your way. Kellyanne Conway is going to be with us in a matter of moments. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West from Texas will tell us the real story happening at the border and what about the improvement they're doing now in Rio Grande. They're actually putting uh, blow up barriers in the middle of the Rio Grande to stop the border crossers. This is what Texas has had to do. So much of their money is being shelled out to protect the border, which is the federal government's problem. We'll talk to uh, former Congressman Lieutenant Colonel Alan West about that. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Sweden has been added to the alliance, and that has 32 members. I think that shows the strength of the alliance. Uh, there you go. That is KJP and Lithuania talking about the good news. Sweden becomes the 32nd nation to join NATO, and that's good. Now it's a race to end the Ukraine war with a victory. Time to finally drop the caution flag if you want to be winners uh, in the end. Why a week in Russia is always in our interests. Number two. I had a very smart former elected official say to me a week ago, remember something. He's been at the front of Republican primary voter minds for eight years. You're not going to get rid of that in eight weeks. And so there's a matter of patience here. Trump too much. His name, his policies, his court cases combined to freeze the GOP standings with him way up. Is there a Republican plan that could catch him? We'll discuss. Number one. This is... A story that is sad and disturbing on so many levels. Yes, Republicans are using it and are going to take advantage of it in a way that is unfortunate and inappropriate. Really? Uh, That is CNN talking about the stunning news about President Biden just ignoring a grandchild. Enemies and former friends are circling President Biden in a clear quest to get him out before his party goes down. From his behavior to his record as president to his dicey deals headed by Hunter, it seems like his armor has been removed. Is that how you see it? Let's ask Kellyanne Conway. Kellyanne, you've seen these series of events taking place. Is it just the way the news is or is there a sense that people are just letting those those arrows hit their target for the first time? I think it's the latter, Brian. Thanks for having me this morning. And look, the media are still going to carry water for Joe Biden. They're going to protect whoever the Democratic nominee is. Right now, it looks like it's him. They also protect Biden and Harris by not by undercovering, by giving us information underload about, yes, their poor performance or incompetence or lack of confidence, but also they don't really do much. I look at the vice president's schedule, public schedule every day, the night before, most weekends and some weekdays, it says the following. The vice president has nothing on her public schedule this weekend. How is this possible? It's amazing. How is everybody you know, how is everybody you know who's passed on to heaven busier than the vice president of the United States? So even there, the media just, it's nothing to see here. But I think the fissures are starting to show, the cracks are starting to show for this reason. It's because the Biden administration, the Biden White House, 
is not that generous to the mainstream media. They don't give them stories. They don't give them the truth from the podium. Um, you've got a, a press secretary, and you've got members of the cabinet. You've got the president himself, like an old angry cuss, yelling at members of the media when he's not sniffing people's hair, when he's not being offensive, when he's not ruining the nation's economy, when he's not covering up for his son and his family. He's not a nice guy, and that's what's starting to be surfaced in these stories. Now, I think the media also see in their own polling, including the Fox News polling, Brian, that about a third of Democrats right now are committed elsewhere and are sniffing around or looking around beyond Joe Biden. So they're, they are, the media are hedging their bets in that they feel maybe Biden won't make it, and they want to at least keep the, the proposition open that there would be somebody else. Last point. They are worried, of course, sick to death because they don't know how to stop them, that Donald Trump could actually be president again. And so there's a little pee, a little sliver of the media who's thinking, I don't want to be on the bad side of that. I was on the bad side of that for so long. I've been on the bad side of that. I've been on the wrong side of that because I still can't figure out Trump. I still can't figure out the 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump. So I, they don't want to be on the bad side of that either in case he's president again. So do you believe that they're heading towards pushing for another nominee? I mean, in the past, Republicans have never been shy about running against an incumbent, let alone a favorite. I mean, uh, Pat Buchanan running against George Bush and uh, Bob Dole and and going against Bush as well. You know, you had John McCain uh, and and George W. Bush. They didn't wait for for a coronation. There was a fight every time. Why are Democrats being so polite about this? The irony is the Democrats have become the anti-competitive party, where things are a coronation or a consolation prize. And the Republicans have reversed course from what I think was a corrosive way of doing business for decades, where you've got, you know, McCain, he lost to Bush in 2000, so he gets to be the nominee in 2008. Then Romney loses to McCain, he gets to be the nominee in 2012. And then, boom, 2016, Jeb Bush is the one in waiting, maybe Scott Walker, maybe a few of these others, and it ends up being Donald Trump. So I, I feel like the, the Democrats are going in the reverse course. They're a little afraid. Look, it's, it's very simple. Inertia is the most powerful physical force in politics unless and until overtaken by friction. And so things at rest tend to say at rest. Biden's already there. They believe their BS that he's the one that he's he's the one that can beat Trump. Trump can't beat Biden. He lost last time. He'll lose again. So on and so forth. But what they don't what they're not what they're not taking into account, Brian, is that voters are going to just compare the two records of these presidents side by side a little bit more clinically than maybe emotionally. And they're going to cast aside many of the ways that they feel about Trump, whether it's his indictments or the way he speaks or the his, this, that, the other about him. They're going to cast that aside and say, I need someone who's going to fix this economy. I'm going to energy right. independence, get it done with crime and Ukraine and the border and whatnot. Um, now, having said that, I've been, you know, long on the record, even if it's Joe Biden, it's hard to dislodge a sitting president. Incumbents have tremendous advantages. I just don't see Joe Biden taking advantage of those advantages right now, leveraging them, meaning like, where's the fundraising? Where's the excitement? Where are the big speeches? Where's the, where's the joy on the job? He just uh, doesn't there's zero. You would think a guy that spent 50 years zero. trying to be president would be happy about it. Evidently, the story with Axios, backed up by multiple sources, we've seen it in front of the camera, that he's unhappy, he's a yeller, people don't want to go into his office alone because he tends to unload on them. So something's got this guy angry, and no one's, make, no one's mocking his age. I mean, look at Senator Grassley. 
I mean, Grassley's eight years older than him. The guy could run a marathon, it seems. And then you have even Henry Kissinger's 101 years old. It's going to be the keynote speaker at this uh, at the Al Smith dinner. I mean, no one's no one's if everyone's listening to us now and you're close to 80, we're not putting you down. We're just saying the guy that's got this job doesn't seem to be able to do it. Let's switch to the GOP. Right now, it seems like everything is frozen with Donald Trump on top. Right now, the latest poll, I guess, from Florida Atlantic uh, University about Florida. Trump is leading Ron DeSantis by 20 points in Florida. Undecided is at seven. Then Vivek Ramaswamy at four and the rest in single digits. The national polls look exactly the same way. Do you believe these polls are frozen? Yes, they are. They're frozen, but they're also they're also becoming solidified because nobody has been able to say why they are a viable and better alternative to Donald Trump as a Republican nominee. They've all made one big mistake, particularly DeSantis, who was probably best positioned, Brian, to be able to make the following case and failed to. I am not the alternative to Donald Trump, DeSantis should have said. I'm the alternative to Joe Biden. I'm the alternative to him, to him ideologically, generationally, accomplishments-wise, vision, alignment on the issues with most of the country. I don't know how you put that genie back in the bottle. Um, his team is on the record saying, quote, the Republican nomination will not be decided through trade and taxes. It will be decided through the culture war issues. I totally disagree. Of course, all of the above is important. But don't dismiss how Donald Trump got there in the first place, how he overcame 17 qualified men and women in 2016, and how he beat the Queen Bee herself months later that same year. How did he do it? He elevated issues that were mired in the single digit and polling, like trade, like immigration. He wasn't afraid, as so many candidates are. It's not high in the polls. My pollster told me no. The focus group said no. He said, heck with right. that. I've been, he probably said, I've been on Fox and Friends every Monday for the last however many years talking about China eating our lunch, talking about imbalanced trade deals, yeah. talking about And also the Supreme Court justice and that yes. seat that was going to be available certainly helped. So I want to hear, I want you to hear me, what Brian, this... Brian, sitting here right now, give me the plan and the program of any other Republican on everything we just talked about, on trade, on right. the economy, on the border, on the justices. They simply don't have it. Right. Here's what Ron DeSantis when asked uh, about this yesterday, about how he plans to catch Trump. Cut 15. First, I think it's pretty clear that the media does not want me to be the candidate. I think that they've uh, tried to create uh, narratives that somehow the race is over. Uh, this is going to be a state by state contest. Uh, we got a lot of work, but we've had very, very favorable uh, response. And we're going to keep building off that momentum at the end of the day. I think the fact that I'm the one that's targeted by the media, by the left, even by the president of Mexico, is because people know that I will beat Biden and they know that I will actually deliver on all these issues and beat the Democrats. So, Kellyanne, how is that for an answer to why he's trailing? It's better than it's been, but it's a little late to be saying that, because if you go back seven months to the what what is it, eight months, excuse me, to the 2022 midterms. The idea that eight months later we'd be having a conversation about polls being frozen because Trump is in such a dominant position and DeSantis is a distant second struggling to get traction. And I think starting to show his frustration with not being the front runner, which he was promised to be by his donors, by his overly paid consultants, by the mainstream media. I disagree with Governor DeSantis. He's been a great governor and a poor presidential candidate so far. That's the difference. I disagree with him saying that the media 
don't want him. I think the media has been pushing him for a while because they, they knew that we were going to come to this point where he was going to stumble. Right. He was going to have difficulty beating Trump. I can't imagine anybody well, in public life more targeted by everybody than Donald Trump. I mean, that's a ridiculous point. But listen, it is early unless you're DeSantis. Um, I, look, I think the DeSantis people, and he's got a couple lawyers around him saying this openly, so let me say it here for the first time. Uh, they are they are banking on Trump cutting a deal, being indicted two more times, three or four indictments total, cutting a deal, no prosecution, but no presidential run either. And then DeSantis swoops in as the next guy in line. You should not ever bank on you being you winning because somebody else is losing. You need to have that stickiness, that compelling message, that connective tissue with the voters where they say, you're the guy, you're the gal, well, you're the one that's going to make my life better. I, I, I hear you. They are waiting for something to drop with the indictments. But every time the indictments come up and they're announced and, they're, and there's an arraignment and an appearance, nothing else matters. The whole world stops. And then every time a candidate goes to the stump, it's, it's always a question about Trump, good or bad about Trump. So their whole campaign, their, their, their message gets swamped. But here's the one thing that I have not heard persuasively done. How, people have said, avoid attacking Trump, focus on Biden. But if Trump's number one, how do you pretend as if he's not standing in your way? I've also heard go directly at Trump where you thought he was weak over the last four years. And they go at the border and the swamp is still in existence. Those seem to be non-starters. Everybody knows he did everything possible at the border. And the swamp, no one man was going to do it, but one man identified it. Just like, for example, going after DeSantis on pandemic. The guy was awesome on the pandemic. I don't think you can touch him there. But if you go at Trump and just say, listen, I could do the same things, only here's X, Y, and three tweets. Here's the seven tweets I wouldn't have put out. Here's the Mattis I wouldn't have fired. Uh, this is the people I would have hired instead of the ones he hired. Can you go piece by piece of how you would have done the last four years differently and then go to the how, the, how you would do it in the next four years? I think it's a great point, and and President Trump should do that. Personnel is policy. I've been on the record as saying was one of his weak spots in in certain places and spaces. And look, I I was there, I'm very close to him. I was there from the beginning, um, almost to the end, Brian. And I will say this: that the president, President Trump, believed that, and probably still believes that, if he was there, at enormous financial sacrifice, privacy, I would say physical security. Um, family time, the whole thing. If he was there, he thought everybody was there for the right reasons. You have people who were there and then left and just crap all over him all day. And I was there in the room. I was there in the Oval Office when these people couldn't get enough of Donald Trump. And yes, some of them were high-ranking cabinet members. What changed? Well, I don't want to hear they discovered this or they discovered that and it all changed. I think what's changed is he's no longer in power and it's, it's kind of profitable. Um, to be against him. And some of them think they're cleaning their conscience, but they were there the whole time and for an extended period of time. We can talk about, we can name them some other time. I'm not here to shame them or blame them, but I think we should name them. Um, look, so that has to change in the second term. And he could say, I'm going to give you, just as I gave you the list of 21 men and women who would serve on my yeah. Supreme Court as my nominee, I'm yeah. going to give you a list of the people who would be in my in my administration, but I'd like to hear that from all of them, frankly. Um, but here's the other thing: you mentioned a couple of important points. I, first of all, it's both of the above. If you want to take out Trump, you gotta you gotta go at Trump. Of course, you gotta you gotta say I'm the alternative to Biden. But you also have to do something that no one has done. No one in the Republican field, no one in the mainstream media has done the following. 
you have to understand the 74 million Trump-Pence voters from 2020. And if you're just calling them a cult, if you're making fun of the way they look, the way they talk, the way who they are, what they do for a living, uh, how many kids they have, if they go to church, if they own a gun, if you're making fun of people, you're not engaging people, you're enraging people. And I'll be darned that not a single one of them, let alone the mainstream media, has bothered to take a minute to understand what motivates these people. It's so much easier to criticize them and to castigate and denigrate them than understanding what motivates them. Because guess what? They'll be back. In 2016, I coined the phrase the undercover hidden Trump voter. In 2020, I saw people from the president's campaign, of which I was not involved I know. at all. You were all. not happy with them. Um, well, well, I'm, I'm saying, like, they were saying, oh, there's an undercover hidden Trump voter. No, there wasn't in 2020. In 2020, they were in boat parades, Brian. They were out right. in their red MAGA hats in the snow watching him at rallies in Pennsylvania. Gotcha. So that's not true. But I think they're back in 2024. All right. And I think it's we'll going to be more Hispanics, I'm sure. more suburban women. But look, it's a long way gotcha, to go. Gotcha, Kellyanne. We're up against a break, but I know he wants you there, but you got to stay here. Uh, Kellyanne Conway offering great insight as usual. Back in a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Everyone's looking for one silver bullet that will end his candidacy. And I don't think that exists. But I do think that there becomes a weight that he has to carry around. The lead news that I saw this morning was his trial team asking for a trial to be delayed past the election. Well, if there's another indictment, let's say, in in Georgia, and if there's another indictment um, by DOJ, all those things are going to be going on at the same time this guy's trying to campaign for president. And I think there's a weight on a burden that he will carry that other people look at and say, now, with four indictments, can he actually beat Joe Biden? And I think that that's going to take some time, though. I had a very smart former elected official say to me a week ago, remember something. He's been at the front of Republican primary voter minds for eight years. You're not going to get rid of that in eight weeks. And so there's a matter of patience here. But if he was unpopular, it would be gone instantly. And that's the problem. Uh, if you're running against Donald Trump, he's popular. And you know who's making him look better? Uh, Joe Biden. Almost everything Joe Biden did is the inverse of Donald Trump. And it looks terrible. Uh, overseas, you, you see what's going on in England, where the uh, the U.K. basically is not happy with Joe Biden. They want to get a free trade deal. Trump was ready to do that. They're not going to do it. Then he doesn't even know where he's going as the king is walking him around. Evidently, you're not supposed to touch the king. This guy's got his hands all over him. And now he goes over to... Uh, explain why we're using cluster bombs. He said, well, we're all we're out of the other ammo, so what does that say to our enemies? What does it say to Russia, who says, why am I still fighting this? It gives them hope that we're running out of ammo to give Ukraine. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Ukraine, as President Biden said, is running very low on conventional and traditional artillery. 
They're in desperate need of artillery to try to make more gains in their current offensive, and we have millions of these munitions. So I think we, provide, we should provide it to them. I think we should have provided it to them earlier. I'm glad President Biden took the step he has now, though. Um, and in the end, this is the best way to achieve peace, is to have Ukraine get more battlefield victories and put pressure on Vladimir Putin to come to the negotiating table. Right. Senator Tom Cotton yesterday, he said the same thing with us. He also was on a special report. He is for these cluster bombs going over to Ukraine. They got to win. Yesterday, they were hit by about 27 uh, drones uh, made in Iran. Uh, they were heading for Kiev and for Odessa. They were able, most of them were knocked out of the sky, but shows you they're trying to send a message on the Russians while NATO meets in Lithuania. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West joins us now, served over in Europe as many of his stints over 27 years. American Constitutional Rights Union Executive Director. Colonel, welcome back. It's good to be with you, Brian. How are you today? Good. Uh, Colonel, You are you in the Senator Tom Cotton I'm for cluster bomb camp? I do not uh, agree with cluster bombs because uh, having been a ground pounder, I know what can happen when you have these unexploded munitions. Uh, we used to have an artillery round called DPICM, dual purpose uh, uh, improved conventional munitions. And, you know, even if you have a 1% or 2% death rate for that, that can mean, you know, detriment for ground troopers who have to conduct uh, offensive operations to try to cover that ground where these GBUs have been dropped. So I think that when you look at providing munitions there to the Ukrainians, you know, we need to make sure first and foremost that we have the proper amount of ammunition to train and prepare our military to deploy, especially, you know, me being a former artillery officer. Uh, you don't want to go out and dry fire. You want to have live munitions that you can train with. And then we need to make sure that enough is set aside to provide some type of uh, you know, support to the to the Ukrainians. But I'm not a big fan of the cluster bomb munitions, and I think that's one of the reasons why we said that we would not use them. Uh, but we didn't sign on anything that said we wouldn't, and they said that ours are better than the ones the Russians are using, and they're aiming at civilians. And is it also oh, true sure. that when you have these minefields, you drop the cluster bombs, uh, bombs on the minefields to explode them? You can do that, and you can also use conventional uh you know, artillery or uh, bombs to explode and create a uh, a scene through a minefield. You know, we used to have this thing with the engineers called a mick a mine-clearing line ex- uh, explosive charge. Uh, maybe you remember in Saving Private Ryan, you saw how they would use those to uh, bust through uh, concertina wire and things of that nature. But mick are also another good uh, opportunity to ba- break through minefields. But, you know, when, when you look at what is happening there in Ukraine, there are three things that I think that are so important for the Ukrainians. First and foremost, they, they, they need to be able to control their airspace. So aircraft is important. Air defense is important. Then long-range artillery is important. That's why I support the HIMARS system uh, going over to them to give them that, that range standoff against the Russian artillery. What about the attackums? Well, the, the ATACMS is is part of the MLRS, and so yes, that's another uh, weapon that you can use, and it's all off the same platform. So, high mobility artillery rocket system. You talk about your basic two 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 seven millimeter uh, rocket, but then the Army tactical missile system. That's also very uh, good, and and we have point detonating uh, rockets and missiles now that they can use from surface to surface. So, I think that those would be very lucrative to use against minefields. They're not using them. Uh, they won't give them the attackums. Today, the French said they're going to give them long-range rockets, and uh, the uh, Russians say we're going to we're going to take note and we're going to respond.
But so far, what you're looking at with Russia, bit of chaos with their government. No one could quite figure out what's going on there. But most of their troops are in Russia, excuse me, in Ukraine. They are They seem as a country wide open. I mean, is there a tactic that you would use if you're in Ukraine to give them a reason to keep troops back in Moscow? Well, I think the most important thing you should be looking to do is uh, cutting off what we call the MSRs, the main supply routes, that would uh, you know allow these troops in, in Russian troops in Ukraine to be sustained. And if you can cut off those main supply routes, then you basically are starting to starve off their resourcing, their their food, fuel, and ammunition that are used to sustain them in this combat operation. So I would think that would be the thing that I would do and start looking at you know certain pen. Uh, operations where you can, you know, separate and cut these uh, elements off and prevent them from being reinforced. That, that would be the most important thing that I would seek to do. Uh, a couple of things. Here's Eldridge Colby on what he thinks go, is going on with the war. As you know, the Russians' offensive did not work through the winter. They're about to lose Bakhmut, which they lost thousands of guys trying to capture. They captured for about a minute. Now they're about to lose it again. And as the offensive takes shape, maybe not as quick as everyone thought, people are optimistic. He is not. He's the former Trump deputy assistant of defense. Cut 29. The admission by the president on 155 millimeter rounds, which are actually very standard and relatively simple weapons that were depleting them, is a huge admission. And I'm not sure why they're taking any kind of victory lap, because the war in Ukraine, unfortunately, looks like it's going to be protracted. We hope they do well, of course. But so far, it seems to be pretty modest. Now, there could be a breakthrough, but I don't think that's going to decisively end the war anytime soon, if at all. And at the same time, they're going to China, and they're sufficiently provocative to be offensive to the Chinese who believe they're trying to strangle them, but not doing a good enough job about it to actually hold the Chinese back. At the same time, Iran is moving to become something close to a threshold state. So why are they taking victory? I think a lot of it is just the optics of going to a NATO summit. It's basically the symbolism. But actually, we're on a really bad trajectory, as far as I can tell. Where do you stand? I think, once again, the most important thing we need to be doing is pushing, you know, oil and natural gas exports into these countries and undermine uh, Russia, and because that's a main part of his resourcing. And when we have, you know, abdicated our energy independence, the ability to produce, to consume, and export these resources, we gave a, a tipping hand to, to Russia and, and as well to, to Iran. So I think it's important that we look at the periphery and start putting those uh, economic back on there stronger against Iran so they're not able to export their terrorism and their drones. We need to make sure that we are doing what is necessary to cut off the uh, revenues of, of oil that come into uh, into uh, and natural gas that come into Russia. So it's, it's, a, it's a total type of uh, perspective you have to look at. So diplomatically, we need to put the pressure on them. Militarily, we need to be able to do that, uh, not commit our troops. But then economically, I think that's one of the most important things, especially with energy resources. All right. Uh, you have a we're waiting on the confirmation of of so many military officers promotions because Tommy Tuberville saying I want to I want proof mm-hmm. that the Pentagon is not going to provide any government money for abortions or gender or, or gender affirming care or whatever they want to call it. So they're holding yeah. all confirmations. But there is a hearing today. And it's for the Air Force Chief of Staff General Charles Q. Brown. They're going to make Correct. him chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You do not like this move. Why? 
Well, this is the thing that I believe should happen today, and the, the hearing has started. We need to make sure that we don't have ideological generals. We need to make sure that we have generals that are focused on the, the core missions of the military, which is to recruit, to train, to deploy, to fight, to win, and take care of our families. And right now what we see is a military that is kowtowing to an ideological agenda of the left with all of this concerns about gender dysphoria, you know, DEI, CRT. I, I would ask the general, you know, based upon the recent decision, of the uh, Supreme Court. Do we want to still have racial quotas and, and that uh, as part of our service academies? And why are we having DEI and CRT uh, part of the curriculum at our service academies? So I want to make sure that we have a general that's not going to follow along the same lines as General Milley. And I would also ask General Brown, what would you have done different in Afghanistan uh, to prevent the debacle that we saw happen over there? So that's my concern, is that we get back to generals that are going to abide by the Constitution and lead our military and restore our capability and capacity uh, instead of having ideological generals that are just you know, putting forth the agenda of the progressive socialist left. And you think he might be? Well, one of the concerns I have is that he has admitted that he believes that there should only be 46 percent of white male aviators in in the Air Force. Uh, Why would you put that number out there? We want to have the best qualified aviators flying, uh, you know, our aircraft. We don't need to say we're we're just going to have X percentage of white males and and then we're going to do what's necessary to manipulate the other numbers. That's not the mission of the military. The mission of the military is to, as the Army used to say, be all you can be and go out and get the best. Uh, right now, uh, looking at what's happening at the border, they say the numbers have decreased. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with this policy of people reporting yeah. for asylum in another country and us yes. flying them in. How come we don't get those numbers? Well, you have to ask uh, Alejandro Mayorkas why we don't get those numbers. And furthermore, you have to ask uh, yourself, where does it say constitutionally that the president of the United States of America can create an app to allow people who are illegal to apply for uh, entry into the country outside of the country? Uh, and so we've gone way beyond the Remain in Mexico policy, and so we have extended, you know, the, the the granting of people coming into this country legally beyond our own borders. And who are the people that are coordinating and working with these people uh, who are illegals to enable them to come to a port of interest saying, see, I already have my permission to come in? Uh, this is just a whole bunch of unconstitutional mess, but then it's also part of the agenda of the left, which is a national security risk, as you and I have discussed previously. So just real quick on the Republican side, we have about mm-hmm. 12 candidates. They all have their strengths. And I think it's a strong field, but no one's touching Trump. In fact, he's expanding his lead and head to head. He is now beating Biden by one. And DeSantis in the latest poll, it's just a poll, but it shows a trend, uh, is trailing Biden by five, which if yeah. you told me that five months ago or right after the election, I would say it's impossible. Well, why do you well, think the, why do you think the polls look the way? Let's just assume that they're somewhat accurate. Why do you think they look the way they do? Well, because there's a, a personal attack upon President Trump that's widely proliferated, you know, by the media. But then when you look at all the corruption of Joe Biden, you see this this double standard. You see this two-tier system of justice. And I'm thinking that you're starting to look at Democrats, independents, and Republicans that are find this abhorrible. Uh, 
you, you know, Hunter Biden and all the things that we know about him that y'all discussed even this morning on Fox and Friends, I think that's, you know, helping to boost uh, President Trump. Now, there are some people that are thinking that, you know, these uh, these uh, legal issues, uh, if they become insurmountable for the president, you're looking at folks that uh, believe that they can step into the gap. But it's, it's still a two-person race. Uh, it really is. And we'll see how it fares. But I think President Trump needs to show up at these debates. Uh, don't think you can dial it in. Don't think that you don't have to, you know, play the game. Uh, you he's have to not. be out there. I'm telling you, he's well, not going. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, that would be just like I remember when uh, my University of Tennessee got upset by Georgia State University. So it doesn't matter who you are on that playing field. Someone else can creep up and, and upset you if you're not careful. Uh, so I would advocate to him to be there on that stage to answer the questions and to also fend off any type of uh, attacks from the other candidates that are there. Show strength. All right. Uh, and you have not endorsed anybody yet, right? No, sir. I'm, I, you know, I ain't that important, Brian. I'm not like you. I mean, people want your endorsement. They don't care less about me. I think you got the exactly backwards, uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Allen West. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. My, my buddy, you take care. God bless. Absolutely. And see you soon. All right. When we come back, I'll open up the phones for the first time. one 408 7669 You can write me, com. Click on comments, and I'll get to them then. Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. It's with a really deep sense of peace and gratitude and excitement that I want to share with you guys. This is going to be my last season. Uh, my last World Cup and my last NWL season. Um, obviously, there'll be more to come further down down the road after hopefully we get done what we want to get done. Uh, that's Megan Rapino, and we know uh, the number one story in sports is you know in July. It's so smart for the Women's World Cup to take place. Usually, it's when the Men's World Cup is, unless you put it in the desert and they had to move it to the winter, uh, like uh, Qatar last time or Qatar. So Megan Rapino, one of the most high-profile players at 38 years old, announces she's going to quit. By the way, she's also one of the few, along with Alex Morgan, who says it's okay if you're a transgender to play on a women's team, which is insane. But it goes to show you it's good for Megan Rapino to leave at 38 years old and say it's okay for guys to dress up as girls and play against them because she doesn't have to deal with it. It's now in a rearview mirror. So I think that she has been a, a menace as a personality, she's a real good player, obviously. But as a personality, she's been very me-centric. She was one of the first ones to kneel and have problems with U.S. soccer and our country and be a bit of a rebel and use profanity when a bunch of kids showed up after they win the Women's World Cup and they have a parade in New York City. She's cursing up a storm, saying inappropriate things. So she'll probably end up on somebody's news desk, sports desk, but it's just the opposite of the people there. They have the Julie Fowdy's of the world, the Mia Hams. They were um, ideal athletes on and off the field, and they paved the way for her, who seemed remarkably ungrateful. And and there's no way they should have been paid the same as the men. The men's the men's tournament earns six billion dollars. The women, I think, own a hundred and thirty million. So to me, you can't pay those people 
who who are in a tournament that's 130 million as opposed to six billion, and she spent a lot of her time doing that. So those are some of the issues that are going on. Maybe you're not interested in soccer, but you know when the Women's World Cup starts, it'll be one of the number one things, and the ratings will be through the roof. And you remember the first time they burst on the scene was 1999, and when people were buying magazines, and they were on the cover of every single magazine winning the World Cup and penalty kicks. Famously, Brandy Chastain took her uh, shirt off. That ends up on the cover everywhere, and I believe that sports bra is now in the Soccer Hall of Fame. Meanwhile, the President of the United States is over in NATO, and he's talking about life and death and also uh, bolstering the the membership. It is now at 32 because for some reason, I'm not sure what was done behind the scenes, Turkey has given way, The last, you have to have a unanimous, uh, and allowed Sweden to join. So Finland and Sweden have now joined, and the uh, Russians have said, we've noticed this, we've changed our force structure and protection, first for Finland, now for Sweden. And they say we're going to try to win over it with disappointing Turkey's decision. We're going to try to win over Turkey to make them an ally. Good luck with that. Meanwhile, you could sit there and talk tough and talk, tell everyone how to be intimidated. But everyone watches the way the Russian army fights, how they don't want to be there, how so many defected rather than sign up, that they've lost at least 50,000 soldiers and over 200,000 have been forced from the battlefield due to casualties, whether it's mental breakdown or physical breakdown. And they've watched as... Their number one unit, the Wagner unit, goes and decides we're going to go attack Moscow and stop at the last minute or else we would have had a civil war. I've never in my life, that includes Iraq and Vietnam and Afghanistan, Russian style and everything. I've never seen a more miscalculated military action than the Russians going into the Ukraine. They have alienated themselves from most of the West. They have an ally in China, but they always had that ally in China of late. And they basically exposed themselves to third-rate military power with a big-time nuclear arsenal. That's all they have. Uh, They certainly aren't unified. And Vladimir Putin's not coming off as a tough guy. When things got tough, this guy left Moscow and went to St. Petersburg. No joke. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. And by the way, go to briankilmeade.com for any of your comments and questions. Don't move. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. We come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. We're heard around the country, heard around the world. You can also get us on a podcast, BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Uh, thanks so much for listening. This hour, we're going to be joined. Well, I'll do a simulcast on FBN with Stuart Varney. Uh, we're also going to talk to uh, John Lovell. He is the founder and CEO of the Warrior Poet Society and author of a brand new book, The Warrior Poet Way, A Guide to Living Free and Dying Well. So why not do that? Uh, we do have some breaking news to get to, and we'll get to it shortly. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Sweden has been added to the alliance, and that has 32 members. I think that shows the strength of the alliance. There you go. Uh, NATO. Lithuania is the stage for the NATO meeting that they have added an impressive member. It is called Sweden. They are ready to go. Now it's a race to end the Ukraine war with a victory. More on that and Russia's reaction in a moment. 
number two. I had a very smart former elected official say to me a week ago, remember something, he's been at the front of Republican primary voter minds for eight years. You're not going to get rid of that in eight weeks. And so there's a matter of patience here. That is Chris Christie talking about Trump. He is too tough. Is that true? His name, his policies, his court cases combined to freeze the GOP standings with him up by 20 points. Is there a Republican plan or a player that could catch him? We'll discuss it. Number one. This is a story that is sad and disturbing on so many levels. Yes, Republicans are using it and are going to take advantage of it in a way that is unfortunate and inappropriate. Dana Bash on CNN. Enemies and former friends are circling President Biden in a clear quest to get him out, it seems, before his party goes down with him from his behavior. To his record as president, to his dicey deals headed by Hunter, it seems like his armor has been removed. Uh, that's how it seems. How he's now overseas trying to get some uh, international credit. Joining us now is Kurt Volker, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, former United States special representative for Ukraine negotiations, distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Ambassador, for the longest time, Sweden and Finland said, we'll help you guys out. We'll be an associate member We'll ex- do military exercise with you, but I don't want to be members. Something about the Ukraine war changed for both countries. What was it? Yeah, it was Putin's willingness to use force in Europe in the most brutal fashion, uh, particularly the war crimes that Russia committed around Bucha, if you remember that back last year, executing civilians, hands tied behind their back, going after the capital city of Kiev, indiscriminate bombings. And Sweden and Finland are saying, you know what? We've always had this porcupine strategy. We're just going to be too tough for anyone to swallow. And then they look at what happened to Ukraine and say, you know what? Not safe to be a porcupine anymore. No question. This adds quality to the membership. They are ready to go, correct? Absolutely. They have uh, two of the best militaries in Europe. They are fully developed democracies. They spend enough on defense, and they're going to increase as they get into NATO. They've got air forces, uh, Finland flies F-18s. Sweden produced its own Gripen fighter aircraft for a long time. Uh, So they are quite capable. And if you think about the map, you look at the geography here. Now you have all of northern Europe, everything from the Finnish border all the way to Iceland, Norway, uh, all of the Baltic Sea. All of this is now enclosed in NATO territory. This is going to give great coherence to NATO planners when they think about controlling the airspace, controlling the sea lanes. So, you know, it's interesting to paraphrase what the Russians said. They're disappointed in Turkey's decision to no longer stand in Sweden's way, number one. Number two, they also said, just like we adjusted our defense posture when Finland went in, uh, now we're going to do the same thing for Sweden as if it's no big deal. They don't have the forces to not only fight the Ukraine war, defend their own capital, let alone uh, try to avoid being, you know, Sweden and Finland are never going to attack, but try to defend against Sweden and Finland. Right. Well, this is just bluster coming from Russia. You know, they can't say nothing, so they have to say something. So they oh, we're going to adjust our force posture. But as you said, Russia's losing a war against the Ukrainian military in Ukraine. They don't have the forces to spare to open any other front as they wanted to. And certainly don't have the quality, as we've seen in Ukraine, where the Ukrainians have just picked them apart. And they're dragging out World War II equipment to replace what the Ukrainians have destroyed. So, by the way, here's a statement from Peskov, similar, said Sweden's expected ascension to NATO would have negative implications for Russia's security and that Moscow would have to respond. Also, they came out against the 
French sending long-range missiles and said we have to see the exact distances, but we'll have to respond to that too. If you think about it, they have to sit around at night and say, what did we do? I mean, we have done the impossible. We've united. We've made NATO stronger. Yeah, they they had an incredible knack for achieving the exact opposite of what they're trying to do. Uh, They're trying to reestablish Russia's position as a premier country in Europe. They want to reestablish the Russian empire, dominate Ukraine, and keep the West divided. Exactly the opposite. The West is more united. Countries are joining NATO. Ukraine is stronger. Ukrainian military is stronger. And they, through their own efforts, have decimated the Russian military capability. Uh, also, I think it's important to point out not everybody's happy, including Ukraine. They, uh, Zelensky's on his way, but he's not going to get status as a member. And I don't think that's a bit of a surprise, a surprise at all. Here's Jake Sullivan on that. Cut 20. Tomorrow will be the very first meeting of the NATO-Ukraine Council. Allies will agree on a new package of increased support for Ukraine, look at Ukraine's long-term needs, and expand plans for Ukraine's interoperability with NATO. Allies will also discuss Ukraine's path to future membership in NATO. So then it's not there yet. Does it, surprise, it doesn't surprise you, Ambassador. We're not going to put him in now. No, of course not. You know, no one is saying that they need to be a member of NATO at Vilnius. Uh, first off, that would put that would change the war. That would mean it's no longer helping Ukraine defend itself. That would mean that it's NATO going to war with Russia. So we're not going to not going to go there tomorrow. Um, that being said, we have to send a very clear signal to Putin that Ukraine will remember when this is all said and done, there's going to be a firm border and any attack on Ukraine is going to be treated like an attack on anybody else. Um, that's the way that this war ends more quickly and the way we create stable borders in Europe again in the future. But do they have the economy and the democratic institutions in order to be eligible to be a member of NATO traditionally? Uh, I cannot do the definitive uh, look, breakdown of the Ukrainian political structure, but they seem to be quite fractured and they have a reputation of corruption. Has anything changed? Well, it's two things. Um, yes, uh, on the Ukraine side, let's start with that. Some things have changed. And um, the way I can describe it, having visited Ukraine a couple times uh, in the last six months, is the younger generation now that is fighting they're, they're on the front lines. Their friends are on the front lines. Others are trying to run the, the country and the economy behind the lines. Uh, they have an attitude now of no more screwing around. They know what leaders in Ukraine did in the past, and they are determined never to let that happen again. Now, it's a tough, it's a tough order. They're going to have to struggle for that. But the attitude in Ukraine right now is very, very strong about fixing their country because they know the problems they've had. Um, they do have a democracy. Zelensky was elected with enormous popular support. He, he dipped in support dramatically. He's back popular again. They do have martial law because they're being attacked by Russia, but they will get their democracy back on track as the Russians are defeated. The second side of this, though, is what are the standards that we talk about with NATO? Yes, we have always said we want to bring in democracies, market economy, rule of law, etc. And that was our mantra in the 1990s when we brought in Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and so forth. But NATO's history is a little more complicated than that. Uh, Portugal was a dictatorship when it joined uh, the alliance. We brought in Turkey in the 1950s when the military was dominating Turkey. We still have President today, a lot of people criticize as being not fully democratic and the way he governs the country. Uh, I think that NATO's first job is to 
and it is security for all of the members. And as long as we keep our eyes on that, we can bring in countries and we can keep working to perfect democracy. Yeah, I mean, they got to win uh, and they got to get air cover and they're going to need a way to actually get the counteroffensive going without air cover. And it seems as though the Russians have solidified their position. Just last question on the Ukrainian political situation. Have you seen concrete efforts by Zelensky and how has he done it to kind of purify his political system? No, I haven't seen that. I think that's an exaggeration to say purify the system. Um, what I'd say that he has done, he has strengthened a few anti-corruption institutions uh, so that they have begun to do a few prosecutions. They put in place a law um, that is called the oligarchization law, trying to get oligarchs out of politics. And it's it's not quite the right effort. It's a little bit too personalized and not systemic enough, but it's an effort in that direction. Uh, and then uh, what has happened at the same time, and this is where some of the critics come from, is because of the war, it had to centralize a lot of decision-making under the authority of the president. And that has caused some people concern that it's too centralized. And I think, as, as you would say, as I would say, win the war first. <laughs> Just win the war. And then you have to go back and you have to reinforce all right. of these democratic institutions. Yeah, I mean, to, to say, okay, let's have peace talks, that's a good aspiration. But in reality, it'll be reinforcing an invasion, which will only bring us more invasions. They've gotten 20 percent of the country. They got to be pushed back. There's just no question about it in the big picture. But, you know, Ambassador Volker, you should not have to explain this on a regular basis like you do. I shouldn't. Tom Cotton shouldn't. Lindsey Graham shouldn't. The president has to consistently sell his story. And, and by telling the truth about what it means for American security, that is not told, which is allowing a lot of people to say we shouldn't be in this mess. Yeah, you're absolutely We have become experts in saying what we won't do in order to avoid upsetting Russia rather than saying what we stand for. And, and that's what we've got to do. I want you to hear uh, Niall Gardner used to be a key aide to, uh, to Margaret Thatcher Talk about the friction now between the U.K. and U.S. about who's going to head head up NATO. Uh, Cut 30. Biden has treated Britain with sneering uh, condescension over the course of the last uh, couple of years. That's why he's very unpopular uh, over here. Uh, But also he he recently uh, torpedoed the candidacy for NATO Secretary General uh, from uh, Ben Wallace, the British Defence Secretary. That's gone down very badly uh, here in London and Biden is backing the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, to be the next NATO Secretary General, which is absolutely disastrous. It's absolutely insane, I think, his approach. And so there's a lot of strong criticism of Biden on the ground here in London. Your thoughts? Can you bring us inside that process? Sure. Well, it's a a more complicated process than everything that Niall just explained. Uh, You have the French, for instance, insisting that the the Secretary General of NATO has to come from an EU country, UK is no longer in the EU. You have many countries that say it has to be a former prime minister or a former head of state. Ben Wallace coming out of this as defense secretary, they don't view him as at the right level. Uh, Several countries have said, you know, we've never had a woman. We should have a woman. And you have countries like Poland and the Baltic states say we've never had anybody from the front lines. (laughs) We ought to have somebody who's actually involved in the fighting here uh, closer or closer to the fight and to be secretary general. So it's a very complicated picture. The way you cut through that is U.S. leadership from the beginning to give the whole alliance a direction of saying this is where we think we need to go. These are the attributes that we think are important. Here are some people that we like to try to help 
coalesce people around the candidate. We didn't do that. We let it get a long time. A number of people were talked about who never really got there. There was the Danish prime minister. There's the former president of Croatia. There's former president of Estonia, uh, all of them women. Um, none of them really got to the top of, the, of anybody's list. And by the time the U.K. comes around with Ben Wallace, people are all over the map. And it was too late to actually come together on anything. I want you to hear Vivek Ramaswamy. I like a lot of his ideas. I don't like this one, but I'll share it with you because a lot of people do. Cut 32. Here's my vision of how we should end this war, Pierce, is I would negotiate a peace treaty which would freeze the current lines of control exactly where they are, a Korean War-style armistice agreement. I would further commit that NATO would not admit Ukraine to NATO, but I would demand something of even greater value from Putin. Russia has to exit its military partnership with China. The China-Russia military partnership is the single greatest military threat that the United States faces. So I would end this war on terms that require dissolving the Russia-China partnership. Okay, but hang on. Let and me, that, right, by let... the way, is how we deter Xi Jinping. Okay. Your thoughts? Well, uh, it's hard to know where to start. Um, let's start with the Russia-China partnership. Um, Russia's the weak partner in this one. China's the strong one. And China doesn't respect Russia all that much, and China's not helping Russia all that much. So we shouldn't be worried too much about that. And when you look at a, what he's calling a stable ceasefire line, well, you know, from 2014 to 2022, that's kind of what we had. And Russia used that time to build up its forces and attack. Uh, we should have learned from that experience, not try to repeat it. And then finally, as you said earlier, uh, Russia's determination is not based on any kind of threat that it perceives. They just use that as, as language to explain. Um, what they are doing is trying to overtake all of Ukraine, remove Ukraine as a country and as a people, bring it back into a bigger Russian empire to build strength again for the future. That's the threat. And so what we ought to do is help the Ukrainian get all the territory back. Don't reward aggression by giving them what they've already taken and legitimizing it. Take it back and then build a stable border. And that's that's where yeah. we are at the moment. It's what we have to finish the job on. Yeah, under 30 seconds. Uh, Peskov of Russia said Prashogin and his lieutenants met with Vladimir Putin at the Kremlin days after the would-be invasion of Moscow. Your thoughts? Is that true? Uh, I think it is true. We've seen it from several sources now, and it's truly remarkable. I think it shows you the degree to which Putin realized he was weak and that he needs the Wagner Group to do fighting for him and that if he actually goes against the Wagner Group, he could lose. So he had to try to rebuild this partnership. And Bogosian wanted to do that because it enhances his stature dramatically, and it probably uh, cements uh, his rising role in Russian politics. Yeah, and he wanted those generals out, and we'll see what happens. Uh, fascinating conversation, Ambassador Volker. Exciting time, an impactful time. Kurt Volker, thank you. Brian, great to be with you. Your calls are next. Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's going to be a big week. Tomorrow, uh, Chris Ray will be on Capitol Hill to try to defend himself and some of the FBI policies. Also, how do you defend the fact that the FBI is all upset that a, a court ruling just came down last week that said they can no longer 
are respond or getting involved with any social media companies. A long time coming. The Twitter files reveals that. And now we find out what the FBI might have been doing behind the scenes in 2019 when I believe he was there, 2019. They had the laptop. They knew it was real. And they didn't tell anybody, including the sitting president of the United States. How could that not get to William Barr's desk, who said he didn't know about any laptop that the FBI had? Now, by the time the president gets there, uh, by the new president gets there, or it gets, uh, it becomes knowledge with the Trump camp, and they try to say, listen, this is, this is out there, and the New York Post is writing about it. They decide to freeze the whole thing, and if you try to retweet it, even as press secretary, you had your, conf- you had your account suspended, like Kayleigh McEnany did, and the New York Post did. I mean, that's, I don't know how Christopher Ray does not answer that question. Either he says, I'm like the king of England, I really have no powers, or I ignored it because I thought it would be a good idea not to tell the attorney general, as opposed to what the attorney general finds out now from Christopher Ray. When we come back, John Lovell joins us, founder and CEO of the Warrior Poet Society and author of a brand new book, The Warrior Poet, oh, Warrior Poet Way. Don't move. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It gives me great pleasure to bring in John Lovell. He's the founder and CEO of the Warrior Poet Project, author of a brand new book, The Warrior Poet Way, A Guide to Living Free and Dying Well. Uh, John, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Brian. So, John, give me an, give, give the, the country an idea of your background. Serving the military, 2nd Ranger Battalion, special operator as a soldier, what did that do for your life and who you are today? Sure. So I believe that men should be not lovers or fighters or lions or lambs. We should be both. And so what my background in special operations gave me is it really cultivated the warrior attributes that I so desperately needed of grit, long-suffering, boldness, fearlessness, leadership stuff, and to be really a dangerous protector of those that I love. But being a warrior is not enough. You had to round yourself out. You had to have what? Well, really, I needed to have more poetic aspects as well. This will keep me from not just defending freedom and defending my family. Too many soldiers uh, defend freedom and they love their families and they're just really difficult to live with. And this isn't just people who are wearing multicam in the deserts. This is just any dude uh, who has this warrior ethos who also needs to balance with more poetic characteristics. We should be as men romantic. That's a major part of masculinity. We should be wise. We should be sensitive, emotionally available for our kids, truth seekers. We should be passionate and able to hold relationships together. And so really we should be fully lover and fighter. Anything less is a deficiency in masculinity. So what what gave you the sense and who helped you round yourself out? Uh, A lot of my faith came in. Also, I got married and I thought I knew something until I got really into the nitty gritty. And I'm like, oh, I'm probably very hard to be married to. And so there was a good bit of learning that I needed to do. But because I really loved my family and I loved other folks, I realized a, a little bit more of the rough edges that I had were not conducive to fostering and flourishing the most important relationships around me. I had to grow as a poet. 
So there were certain times to be tough and certain times to be compassionate. You, if you've learned that balance, are you concerned that other people in this country is getting away from that? I'm absolutely sure of it. I, I think we have a lack of warrior ethos that men desperately need. We're ceding all of our institutions of power uh, to, I think, tyranny. And so I think it takes strong, bold, courageous people to be able to speak the truth. So take warrior as a metaphor, if you would like, but we need strong, bold men that are able to do that, but they're also capable of being lived with. They can flourish relationships. They're loving people. Understood. There's a new trend now in this, and that's in your book, and basically how to live your life and some guidelines uh, to doing it and balancing it out. To get that toughness, to get that edge, do you find that people have that with certain families and certain backgrounds? Yeah, I think so. Our backgrounds will certainly toughen us up. We have a problem in the United States in that we're, I mean, right now I'm sitting in an air-conditioned room, and if I want a drink of water, it's right there, purified and cold. And if I get a toothache, I can get some anesthetic, and I can get there in my air-conditioned control car. We can literally, to a large extent, delay all kinds of suffering and put it off, sidestep it. And in doing, we don't really develop a lot of character. We don't develop a lot of strength because we're just not really suffering much in today's very artificial uh, climate. And so that is really, really problematic. And so I think we are too weak as men. We need to grow in that capacity. But I also don't think that we vacillate too poetic, I think a lot of the attributes of poet are bad as well. So it's not that we're not warrior enough and too poetic. I'd say we're not very good warriors or poets, and we need to grow in both areas. We're in a good place. I mean, no one's trying to bomb us like they are in Ukraine. You know, we're not in the middle of scounging for water like being in the middle of a civil war in Sudan. And I remember reading right after 17, uh, on the cusp of the War of 1812, there was a big sense in this country, where's that spirit of 76? After the Civil War, people were concerned in the 1880s. America's getting too soft. They were not nearly as tough as us. And after World War II, I imagine the same thing. So we had situations where we had to get tough. Women had to go into the workforce. Men all had to fight at 18, whether you're Yogi Berra or the guy down the street. So you get a, you get a forced toughness to it. So if you don't, you, if we're in a fortunate place where we're not in a situation where we're scrounging for water, food, or war, how do you manufacture that? I think it's such a good point, Brian. I think we are naive living in the breadbasket of the world and enjoying so much excess. And you're right, people aren't trying to bomb us uh, presently. But uh, what it's fostered is a spirit of entitlement as we're quite literally entertaining ourselves to death, spending so much time in front of screens. I think we need to get out, live in the real world, uh, work out, take some martial arts, do some some protector stuff, get your hands dirty and calloused, because the result of that long-suffering is to produce character and make us better warriors and stronger men. And so I really dive into this in the book of some real practical ways of, hey, this is how we toughen up, gents. We need to toughen up now because hard times are upon us and they're going to get worse. Yeah, especially if uh, if we don't prepare for those times. So there's a new trend, and I notice it from a lot of people are trying to get, you know, we have have fun with Zuckerberg and uh, and Moss said they're going to get into the octagon. There seems to be a new trend towards fitness uh, and towards weightlifting. And you see RFK Jr. 
uh, and he's talking about how fit he is. And you see uh, the mayor of Miami talking about the marathons he's running. And you see what's going on in our country. Are you encouraged by some of this? Because the people that are starting to get involved with civilian MMA and things now are being labeled right-wing extremists. Yeah, that is absolutely crazy. Uh, I'm a little encouraged because I, I think there's some certain benefits from, hey, getting in shape and getting in some martial arts and being better protectors. But really, I want to encourage men to be strong in all the areas. If you imagine yourself as a castle, there's one kind of opening right there, and that could be physicality, but then there's other doors uh, into that castle. If there's your moral strength, your emotional strength, spiritual, uh, physical is just one of those. And so when I really think about the strength of a man, the thing that matters the most to me is really your spiritual strength. It's your moral strength. It's saying, I refuse to cede a battlefield to the enemy, and I will engage in the war of ideas so that I will be able to carve out a place where freedom can exist and depravity is put down. I'm not going to self-censor. I'm going to speak the truth boldly and call evil what it is. And so moral strength, emotional strength, physical strength, mental strength, uh, I, I think the whole man needs to develop that way. What I'm not saying in my book is, hey, guys, we need to be better warriors to so start lifting weights and doing karate in the garage. But you do think a physical aspect has to be part of it, right, John? I think it is one of multiple aspects that are really important to increase the strength of a man. Yeah, I think we should be working out and becoming better protectors. If you really love people and you recognize the world is a dangerous place, hey, become a better protector. All that stuff is awesome. So we're seeing this new trend with gender-affirming care and everyone's coming out. Hey, I think I'll switch genders today. Uh, you know what? It's a good idea. Don't uh, don't declare what your gender is until later. And the big debate in certain states is, should you be allowed to declare your gender without telling your parents? It's just an insane debate in my view. And now I see this study. Nearly 40 percent of students at Brown University identify as LGBTQ plus, doubling the share from 2010. I mean, is that part of this weird trend we're in? I think that, hey, we just mentioned mental strength. I think lovers of wisdom recognize right now that we're in a postmodern deconstructionist era, and that means we've given up on the idea that there are any truths at all. Good poets should hold the line, not holding back, not self-censoring, but speaking the truth in love and saying, hey, there are certain things that are absolutely true. A man cannot possibly become a woman any more than you can become a dinosaur just can't do it. It's not a hateful thing to do. I have great sympathy uh, for those who are suffering any type of mental illness. I hate that for them. And so my heart certainly goes out, but we do them no favors. We do a hateful thing when we become enablers to that, as if someone was struggling with anorexia and I join in and say, yeah, you shouldn't eat. That would not be a good thing. And so I'm not playing this game. Men can't become women. And 10 years ago, everyone seemed to know it. And lastly, John, because I had to run uh, if people want to just take the first step in becoming uh, uh, a warrior, and uh, you talk about the guide to living free and dying well, what is the first step they could do today? If I don't have a lot of time, I would say buy my book so that you can get the whole overview. If that's not a shameless plug, Brian, I don't know what is, but buy my book and I'll walk you all through it. Right. Uh, join a class. Uh, hop into a, a combat sport class today. And pick up the book and find out how. Uh, John Lavelle, thank, uh, Lovell, thanks so much. Appreciate it. 
Thank you. All right, founder and CEO of the Warrior po- uh, Poets Society and author of the book, The Warrior Poet Way. When we come back, a simulcast with Stuart Varney. You'll finally get to see what I look like. Don't move. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. We're about to go on with Stuart Varney, uh, and we're going to be talking about a few things. Number one, did you notice that the wall seemed to be closing on the Biden impunity when it comes to controversial situations, whether it's the overseas business dealings, what he's like behind the scenes, the fact that he's uh, doddering out in public and seems to be unsure of himself, refused to give interviews. Uh, we'll start off there and talk about, is this just a series of coincidences or are people realizing that the Democratic Party is about to go down in flames if he's going to be heading it up? And the only way to do that is uh, if he won't go out voluntarily to put everything front and center. And that's what Stuart and I are going to be talking about. So let's listen. Time for Brian Kilmeade, who miraculously appears with us right now. CNN's Jake Taffer, reversing course. He says it is important to cover Hunter Biden scandals. Watch this, Brian. I think we cover it. We have been covering it, and we need to cover it. Hunter Biden is who he is. It's pretty clear who he is. In addition to being an addict, he's a guy who ethically has... There have been questions raised about his behavior, and I think it's worth covering. It's also worth covering in context, the context of everything that's being said uh, in in terms of, like, how fact-based any of it is or how evidence-based any of it is. But uh, I'm not going to shy away from covering Hunter Biden. He is the president's son and has made a lot of money being the president's son. And CNN didn't mention the laptop in the 2020 election. So why are they talking about Hunter now? They denigrated the fact that it even brought up it was too crazy yeah. to even say, and it's not yeah. going to glorify it by bringing it front and center. Didn't say a word when the New York Post or the President of the United States or people were sidelined because they brought it up. They didn't look up the veracity of any of the emails. They didn't make a call to see if Joe Biden actually did send that email back or if that was his voicemail on the laptop. And what's so unbelievable and disingenuous is, again, they put a wall between Hunter and Joe. Tony Bobolinsky sat down with uh, one of our anchors, Tucker Carlson, and he said, hey, Jake Tapper, call me. I'll come on and tell the same story to you, how Joe was involved, how they met at the Beverly Hilton. And he said, take care of my family. These are the interaction that Bobolinsky had, uh, all these uh, material and emails to prove it, backed up by Rob Walker, backed up by Devin Archer, who's going to be testifying soon. If Jake Tapper wanted to tap into his journalistic skills. It was all there for him. And if he was serious, not on somebody else's podcast, promoting a a bad lineup on CNN, if he was not on somebody else's podcast, he would call Bobolinsky the day after because that was covered. CNN, come interview me. I will tell you how Joe is involved. So they just want to make it seem like Republicans are jumping on an addict like Billy Carter rolling out a beer. It's nothing to do with that. And nobody cares uh, uh, judging someone on addiction, you can do that in your own living room. It's how that relates to international business deals. Exactly. And exactly. the revelations that came out of yes. who Hunter Biden was interacting with. Jeff Zeitz, who's the chief of staff right now with the president of the United States, how comfortable he was with Anthony Blinken. They're going out to dinner together. So on one minute, he's a degenerate crack addict who loved hookers and driving 200 miles an hour through the desert 
driving on who knows what, doing crack, heading to Las Vegas to meet six women in a hot tub, which is true. On the next minute, he's doing international business deals that have very complicated, have shell companies in various banks that you talk about all the time, Stuart, that are hard to set up. Is it crack making him smarter? I don't understand how all these people can see this addict at the same time do their most intimate dealings with. So I'm, you, there's a lot we need to know, and yes, why is he is. more curious about it? But you brought out a lot right there that, w that I personally did not know before. The trip into the desert was new to me. Change the subject. Ron DeSantis, on my show yesterday, I asked him about MSNBC calling his wife, Casey, America's Karen. Here's DeSantis's response. Roll it. My wife is an incredibly uh, strong first lady of Florida, a fantastic mother, and a great wife. And that threatens the left. Well, I think that they're very worried about her effectiveness. And so all that's doing is confirming that she's over the target. We wear criticism from MSNBC as a badge of honor. Okay, Brian, but why do you think they're going after his wife? Why is that okay? Right? Yeah. I mean, aren't we a couple of years from the Me Too movement where people are supposed to give him respect? And yeah. what did she do wrong? All she does is be extremely poised in front of the camera, manage to do almost the impossible, be the first lady of a state, or raising, uh, I think it's now three young kids, who also was a very successful anchor, an unbelievable golfer, a fantastic commentator, who worked, if you read Ron DeSantis' book, which I know you did, they used to walk and knock on doors because he wrote a book and, and just say, hey, listen, I want you to meet my husband, you know, meet locally. He wants to run for office. They work together. Next thing you know, she gets the nominee. He gets the nomination. He goes to Congress, writes a book about Barack Obama, as he says, about uh, uh, the Obama years, which was he thought was so ineffective. He said nobody bought the book. But I would go speak and talk about the book. And together, they formulated this stellar career, whether he gets a nomination or not. This is a success story. Where was the negative, last negative story you saw about Michelle Obama, where this, no. this unknown lawyer, no. this, uh, this community activist who decides to become a senator and run for president, were people upset that Michelle Obama was giving speeches for Barack no. Obama or that Dr. Jill Biden was giving up elementary school yep. teaching in order to get the word out about her ancient husband? No. But yep. they say that she's Brian. trying to look like Jackie O. She was born that way. It's not her fault that she looks like a former first lady. That's what she looked like as a as a local anchor. And I, okay. I believe it's an ABC I'm affiliate. Sorry, Brian, hard break. We're done. More Vani after this. Unbelievable. All right. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. Uh, okay. Yeah. By the way, and uh, one minute, I'm going to do Instagram live. And I want all of your comments, so we're going to go on Instagram, so get ready, uh, get out your phones, I rarely say this, and you can follow us. And we're going to have a special guest appearance um, who is still, all I'm going to, all I'm going to say is uh, she is still in college, and she'll be appearing on Instagram. If you can guess who it's going to be, um, you've got to be Nostradamus, because we have not promoted it yet. But go on Instagram Live. Also, keep in mind, too, uh, One Nation. I know it's five days away. Uh, but we're coming up on Saturday night. We have also a special guest who is ascending to the 8 o'clock slot uh, in uh, Jesse Waters. He'll be joining us, and we'll talk about uh, Jesse. will be one of our many guests, including many other surprises. So, Brian Kilmeade keep it here. Don't move. A lot more to cover and a lot more to go, including what's happening with this PGA and the live merger. Now the PGA is defending the move. Why is it Congress's decision? 
from high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. In 10 minutes, Governor Chris Christie will be joining us. Uh, and then we're also going to be joined by a special guest, Kelsey uh, Sharon. Uh, she's got a great message and a great uh, personal story as a as a woman fighting for our country, never stopped and telling her story now, uh, what it was like in the battlefield, her feeling after the ridiculous evacu- uh, evacuation of Afghanistan and everything that's happened since. We also have the latest from the NATO summit taking place in Lithuania that's having a lot of impact, especially on the cusp of a major war that's taking place on the doorstep. Uh, so Kelsey Sharon will be with us. She's the author of a brand new book called Brass and Unity, One Woman's Journey Through the Hell of Afghanistan and Back. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Sweden has been added to the alliance. Now that's 32 members. I think that shows the strength of the alliance. Can't doubt that. KJP talking about NATO in Lithuania. And, of course, NATO is adding a major nation, Sweden, who's spending over 2% of their budget, who is ready to go, has already been doing uh, military drills with NATO members. Now they're 32 strong. This is another proof perfect that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been a disaster for them. Number two. I had a very smart former elected official say to me a week ago, Remember something. He's been at the front of Republican primary voter minds for eight years. You're not going to get rid of that in eight weeks. And so there's a matter of patience here. Rob, patience, but his lead only seems to be growing. I'll talk to Governor Chris Christie about Trump being uh, too too strong to touch. So far, the whole, the whole, I guess, I, I almost want to say division, but the whole GOP side seems frozen. Nobody seems to be gaining Vivek Ramaswamy a couple of points. Ron DeSantis loses a couple of points, but still a solid second. What will change it? We'll discuss it. Number one. This is a story that is sad and disturbing on so many levels. Yes, Republicans are using it and are going to take advantage of it in a way that is unfortunate and inappropriate. Enemies and former friends are circling President Biden in a clear quest to get him out, it seems, before his party goes down in flames. From his behavior to his record as president to his dicey deals headed by Hunter, it seems like his armor is being slowly removed and he's being judged like everybody else possibly for the first time. So what am I talking about? Well, now it seems that Hunter Biden's links to major members of his cabinet have been established. I mean, he's got a long relationship with the now Chief of Staff Jeff Zeitz and the former one, Ron Klain, Anthony Blinken, emails that shows the direct links to all of them. If this guy is some wayward son who the president's just trying to save, that's one thing. We all have seen that with first families in the past. But this is a guy in the intimate side of all the international business dealings of the president of the United States or his family and certainly with his cabinet. Why would he do that if he wasn't somehow providing some type of service? And what is some of that service? That's going to be key. And also, why is it that Joe Biden now not acknowledging Hunter Biden's kid out of wedlock and him just saying, I don't acknowledge her. They're not going to have the Biden name and tell everybody I only have six grandchildren. That's not okay. And it's not only okay. Forget politics. What about in life? What a terrible example. Brit Hume brought that up last night. Cut eight. 
Now you have these, these questions being raised about whether he really is truly the loving granddaddy that he portrays himself as. You know, he likes to talk about his grandchildren, how, how much he loves them and how much they love him and how he talks to them every day. Um, but there's one he doesn't even acknowledge. And, that's, and I think people look at that and they wonder, as they probably should. Yeah, well, they wonder. Not only that, it was brought up on The View. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, who, by the way, used to work for Trump, now a huge critic of Trump. Cut six. But I do feel but like if it was Trump, we would talk about it, is the thing. If Trump had a grandkid, he wasn't acknowledged. We all he talk probably about does. He didn't acknowledge Tiffany very well, much. I, I- didn't acknowledge Tiffany. You'd see what they just had a blowout wedding for her. And in the beginning, she was 3,000 miles away. That's what Marla Maples wanted. But Tiffany always felt a part of it. If you talk to any of the Trump kids, and go ahead and do it. They feel like she is a part of the family, and she feels that way. Cut five. This is the view trying to pretend as if it's no big deal. It should be directed to Hunter Biden. It's five children, not four, Hunter, because this is not Joe Biden's baby. The right wing and the MAGA world has decided to weaponize Hunter Biden against his dad. Maureen Dowd should find something else to write about. Yeah, write about something else. I find it unnecessary. This is not anybody's business. Nobody needed to know about this. This is private. (laughs) So you should not acknowledge grandkids. For example, it was brought up in Maureen Dowd's column in the New York Times that Arnold Schwarzenegger had a kid out of wedlock at the same time as another kid, and they're great friends and they're extremely tight. Number two, Tom Brady, obviously is engaged to Giselle, had a previous relationship, and that son from their previous relationship with uh, Bridget Moynihan, I think it is, is part of their family. I'm not judging, I'm noticing. And that's a good example of what you would think the President of the United States, like it or not, is an example to a lot of people, positive and negative. In this way, it's negative. And when you build your candidacy on family, that's an issue, I would think. So when we come back, I'm going to bring this up to Governor Chris Christie and see how much it matters. Uh, and also talk about how he could maybe be the first one to gain ground and why no one, including Ron DeSantis, has done so far. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Uh, hey, we are back and joining us right now. He's a presidential candidate uh, for the GOP nomination and thinks he can win it all. Uh, the former uh, two term governor of New Jersey. Uh, Chris Christie joins us now. Uh, governor, welcome back. All right. Thanks for having me on. Good to be here. Hey, uh, bottom line is uh, I was surprised by your successor. Governor Murphy came out over the weekend and said the president's greatest weapon to win reelection was the economy. Listen. Do you believe that Donald Trump presents the best contrast for Joe Biden's reelection? Um, or are there other candidates that you think would be easier for Joe Biden to face? I don't know that. I, I think this, Chuck, I believe a strong economy and a powerful foreign policy hand, and the president has exhibited both. I think that's a winning hand no matter who they're up against. I'm not mm-hmm. suggesting it's a runaway election like it was in 1984. But if you've got those two engines on your side, that to me is a winning hand no matter who you're up against. That's true. But the question to Governor Christie is, is Governor Murphy right? He's got those two engines on his side. He's, he's absolutely wrong. And this is why Phil Murphy almost lost reelection 
um, two years ago in one of the bluest states in America because he's completely tone deaf on politics. Um, look, the American people understand that despite all the numbers Joe Biden throws at them, here's the number they know. When they go to the gas station, they're paying more than they've paid before Joe Biden was president. When they go to the supermarket, they're paying more than before Joe Biden was president. When they go to try to buy their children clothes, they're spending more than they have before. When they have to pay the college tuition, they're spending more. What they realize is that Joe Biden is costing them money every day. He is the Jimmy Carter of the 21st century. And the same way that inflation beat Jimmy Carter um, when Ronald Reagan ran against him as a conservative governor from a blue state, um, it's the same way I'm going to beat Joe Biden on that issue in November of 24 as a Republican governor from a blue state. What's going to be hard, harder, winning the nomination or beating uh, President Biden? Winning the nomination will be harder because we have a lot of good Republicans in the race, as you know, Brian. I have great admiration for people like Nikki Haley and Mike Pence and Asa Hutchinson and Ron DeSantis. They're, these are all good candidates. Um, but the problem is that, you know, we have a party where you're running against an, an incumbent president, and that's always hard to do. Um, but in the general election, if we nominate the right Republican, and I really believe, like Ronald Reagan, you know, a Republican governor from a blue state knows how to win independence, knows how to win right-thinking Democrats who are tired of the crazy woke party, um, you know, that's the right way to go. And I think that'll be the harder part. Nominate the Republican Party nominates me. We're gonna we're gonna win uh, thirty five forty states over Joe Biden. Well, a couple of things head to head in the polls, and we know they're not exact, less exact maybe than ever before. But let's just say they they say trends. Maybe you can buy into that, uh, and maybe I can buy into that because the polls have been not totally wrong, but uh, a little. Sometimes they they uh, they they, uh, they bypass logic. But right now, DeSantis now was beating Joe Biden. He's now trailing by five in the latest poll, and you have Trump up by one or we're in a dead heat. What's changed? Look, I think what's what's changed is that we're looking at an entirely different world, Brian. Think about all the things that are going on in the world right now, inside our own country, with educational scores going down for kids from K to 12, so that we're becoming less and less competitive in the world. Um, we're seeing this horrible situation at the border. Um, we're seeing what's going on uh, in Eastern Europe and Ukraine. We're seeing China continuing with their friends in Iran and North Korea to make mischief all around the world. Um, you need someone who's reasoned and experienced, Brian, who's going to be able to make that case to the American people. And then we'll wind up winning the race against Joe Biden. And I, and I think that any of the polling now, as you said, look, we've seen these polls be wrong in 2016 when they said Donald Trump had no chance of winning. Uh, we saw the polls be wrong in the primary in 2015 and 16 when they said it was going to be Jeb Bush or Scott Walker. Um, there's a long way to go here um, and a campaign to be run. And it's all going to start on Fox News on August 23rd on that debate stage in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. How close are you to getting uh, the thresholds necessary to be on stage? I think we're going to have a very positive announcement this week, Brian. This week. That means you have 40,000 donations and you have to have at least 1% of the polls? Yep. In the polls, we've already gone past that, both in national polls and in polls in New Hampshire. Um, and so we're fine on the polling side of things. 
and uh, we're we're going to have a good announcement this week um, about being qualified for the debate stage, I believe. A couple of things you can relate to and will definitely be in your lap. Uh, when they talk about uh, informing parents that their kids want to change genders, New Jersey is now suing three school districts over informing parent, parents. The governor, your, your successor, said outing those students against their will will pose serious mental health risks and threaten physical harm to students, including risking increasing suicide, decreasing likelihood of students will seek support. What's your reaction to the suing of districts that want parents to know? It's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. Look, you know my position on this, Brian. The only people who belong in this discussion are parents. This is, these are very, very difficult emotional issues. And Phil Murphy and the woke Democrats are telling us that a school district, some principal or counselor or teacher in a school district, as well-meaning as they might be, are better off than the parents being in the middle of this. The parents have to be informed. This is an outrageous move by a crazy attorney general um, who is just trying to make a name for himself. Um, along with a governor who is, you know, way far out to the left on all these issues, including issues of family. Here's my belief on this issue. This is an issue between children and their parents, between parents and their children. And those are the people who should be making these decisions and counseling the children. If we believe parents should be in charge of their children's educational choices, and I absolutely believe they should be, they sure as heck should be in charge of these kind of personal choices as well. So that's a fight that you back Ron DeSantis on, who's doing that along with his wife, who's getting attacked for doing so. Uh, Look, I absolutely do, except I will tell you this. I don't agree with Republicans who say that there should be laws in the state banning this stuff for minors, because in the end, Brian, again, it should be a parental decision. I'm not a big government Republican. And sometimes what I fear about Governor DeSantis is that he's becoming a bit of a big government Republican. I don't want the government in the middle of our lives in any way. I don't want any of these folks making decisions that families should be making around their kitchen table. Uh, I'm going to uh, bring you uh, just one last question about your race. I want to bring you to what's happening in NATO because a lot, of, a lot of stuff's going on. But the race seems frozen. You know, I know you're going up a few, down a few in the polls, up in a few, but it pretty much single digits except for Ron DeSantis, who dropped a few points. But for the most part, Donald Trump's now over 50. It seems frozen. How do you unfreeze this race? And I'll tell you, there's no strategist who can say this reminds me of because not many people around with Grover Cleveland was here. And there's not many people that could say that a former president is running again when um, William James uh, Jennings Bryant was running. So how do you figure this out? Well, look, I don't think you figure it out, Brian. I don't think that anybody can prognosticate on this. And one thing you forgot was uh, you do, you, you've never had somebody run for president before who's under two indictments um, for criminal conduct, as alleged in the indictments, and has two more investigations open and pending that might result in indictments. But, Governor, it seems your party thinks he's being railroaded and he's getting he's getting strength from this. Now, look, Brian, what they're speaking out against is the unfairness that was displayed towards Hillary Clinton. And so they're going to they're going to say it's unfair to Donald Trump. I don't believe that ultimately is going to lead to him being able to use it as an advantage to win an election. Here's the way you change it, Brian. You start campaigning. Here's what I want to remind you of. As of today, I've been in this race for five weeks. Donald Trump has been running for eight years. 
So, okay, um, five weeks in, I'm in third place in New Hampshire, only four points behind Ron DeSantis um, after being in the race for five weeks. I'll take that. And, yes, Donald Trump's numbers at the moment seem static in these polls. That's because, guess what, Brian? It's July in America. Real people are not focused on this. Guys like me and you are focused on it. But the real people in America are not focused on it. They're going to start focusing this fall when these, uh, when these debates start and they see all of us on stage together. And Donald Trump better show up on that stage because if he doesn't, he's telling everybody that he's afraid to defend his record. And he's afraid to face the men and women on that stage. And I don't want a coward being nominated uh, against Joe Biden. Yeah, I, I think he feels like he has too much. He'll be attacked by 12 people, and he's up by 20 oh, points. Oh, poor him, Brian. Poor Donald Trump will be attacked on his record. Well, then, if his record is as great as he says it is, it should be no problem at all. That's like somebody accusing you of something, Brian, when you know you haven't done it. You're not worried to stand up in court and defend yourself. And, and now gotcha. he wants his trial. He wants his trial to happen after the election. Well, of course he does. Because what he did with the, with the classified documents um, is indefensible. He should have returned them. So, look, this, that, those kind of truths need to be said directly to Donald Trump and right to his face. I'm going to do that on the debate stage, Brian. And if he doesn't show up, he's a coward. Lastly, uh, how do you end the Ukraine war? NATO has just added Sweden. They want to be in part of NATO. They're not there yet. How does Chris Christie end this war? The way you do it is you arm Ukraine um, as aggressively as you possibly can uh, during this now summer offensive that they're going to do. Begin to push the Russians back and make the Russians understand that their dreams of authoritarian aggression um, are not anything that is ever going to happen. That's when you get a negotiation going, because at the end, Brian, what we need is for Russia to understand that they cannot win this war. Once they understand they can't win the war, then you know what they're going to do. Um, They're going to negotiate a a, a resolution of it that makes sense. And I'll tell you who you shouldn't put in charge of trying to resolve that for the United States. Somebody who said that Vladimir Putin is a great guy and a terrific person. (laughs) Governor Chris Christie, thanks so much. Always with gas. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Uh, with me in studio is uh, a new author, the author of a brand new book, Bracing Uni- uh, Brass and Unity, One Women's Journey Through the Hell of Afghanistan and Back. Kelsey Sharon in studio, combat vet, artillery gunner in the Canadian military who served in Afghanistan in 2009 and with Canada, America, British Armed Forces, and still considers them some of your best friends, right, Kelsey? Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, first off, great to meet you. Thank you. What made you hop into the service to begin with? I met a lady on a bus. Really? I'm not kidding. In Canada. It's the weirdest story, I know. It doesn't make any damn sense. So I met a lady on a bus. So you guys down here call it Veterans Day, but we call it Remembrance Day. And Remembrance Day for Canadian and British are, it's a solemn time. So we don't say Happy Veterans Day. It's you wear a poppy, everyone's real quiet, we thank our service, and we move on. I was going to college at 18, and I was on my way back from the ceremony, and I met this lady in an Air Force uniform, which must have been at least in her 80s. And it's kind of like that moment that you look at, like, you look back at a movie and it's like, oh, where is she going to go next, right. right? I met her. Something clicked. 
I got off the bus. I quit college the next day, and I went to a recruiter's office. And your recruiter said what to you? I walked in, and I said, hey, I want to join the Army, and I want to be on the front lines. And in 2007, when I joined in Canada, women have always been allowed to do combat arms roles. So we can do infantry. We can do artillery. We can do armored. We can do EOD, just always. And so for me, I wanted to be effective. I wanted to be at the front lines. And so I said that, and I said I'd love to do infantry. And they looked at the size of me and kind of laughed. And I said, well, you don't know my background. But they're like, yeah, no. So then they gave me armored, and I said, I don't want to be in a tin can when that blows. I know what that looks like. And they're like, what about artillery? I was like, all right. So I went artillery. And you knew there were two hot wars going on. Uh, yeah, I'm fully, fully aware. When Canada became like heavily involved, I, I believe it was like 06, 07. Before that, we were kind of na- uh, more of a United Nations, so we weren't doing active combat door kicking. 2007 kicked off, and that's when things got real serious, and we started doing six-month rotations on regular. When did you realize that you liked it? I think the moment they started yelling at me. Why? I don't know. I was a fighter, real high-level combat, uh, competitive fighter, most from age of four to 19. And so... What kind of fighting? uh, Taekwondo. Okay. So I absolutely love hard challenges, and I love the difficulty, and my coach was always really hard on me. I thrive with that, with pressure. So that's great. I mean, most people fault. Uh, Usually (laughs) it's just the opposite. So you had the toughness going in, so you kind of accelerated through. When was the first combat you felt or experienced? So the first time, so it went really quick for me. I joined uh, in December of 07. I was in basic training in January. All through that year, I did my training. I was posted in September, and I was deployed the following April. And where? To Afghanistan. And what was it like? What, what town were you in? What city? So we we all land into Kandahar, into CAF there. And then after that, because our artillery unit was split amongst uh, multiple different FOBs, my FOB was actually an American FOB. So I was – we were a Canadian triple uh, seven unit, but we were being borrowed by the Americans. And this year was 2000 – 2009. So 2009. That's right when the surge in Afghanistan happened. Oh. Oh, we had a busy it, summer. Yeah. yeah, we were popping. Uh, and wh- how would how would you describe things on the ground? So I went out to Fob Ramrod, which is in the Maywan district, and it was it was fairly quiet for us for a moment. Uh, it started to pick up because we were providing cover fire for anybody within the forty kilometer radius of that fob, because the triple sevens can shoot up to forty kilometers with a one five five millimeter howitzer. Um, with the one five five millimeter, there's that uh, artillery range again. So we told President Obama said that's a good war. I don't like Iraq, so. President Obama wanted to fix and have a surge there. Mm -hmm. But by the time we got to the troop level necessary, we were pulling troops out. You had how many on the ground when you were there? Was it was it a time in which General Petraeus was technically in charge and there was about 80,000? That's think? above my pay grade. I'm over my skis on oh, that. Were there one. a lot of big was there a big presence? I mean, for me, what I saw, I was in the middle of absolute nowhere. So I was working with like the 101st and those guys. And we had a very tiny fob. The whole fob was max maybe four miles around. It was very small. And then ultimately, I stayed with the Americans and the Canadians for half of my tour. And then I got pulled by the British military to go with them on an on-foot operation to go door kick. So I was with them as their female, what we call a cultural support team. My job was to kick the door in, take the women and children, search them, make sure nothing was with them. And ultimately, due to those decisions being made by the politicians, you know, the rich man wars where the young men die, we were put into situations where we weren't prepared. That surge was horrific. We lost, the Brits lost, the Americans lost, the Canadians lost, left, right, and center. People were coming home in body bags in 2009, 11, and 12. Like, it's unbelievable. Right. And they were trying to – this was something where after the invasion, everything calmed down. Mm -hmm. Focus was on to Iraq. Then Afghanistan started getting out of control. Al-Qaeda started coming back. That's when you guys went in. But culturally, to have a female there, that's respecting their culture because 
There's certain things men and women did, I guess. Yeah, in their view. there's a respect factor with it for sure. Don't get me wrong, but let let's not let's not pretend that the Americans and the British knew what it was like to work with a woman at the time because they didn't. Because you guys did not put women on the front lines into those combat roles until 2015. So at the time, I walked into a role where they've never served, unless it was a medic, they had never served with a woman. Uh, so it was a very different dynamic. You had to keep selling yourself to your own team. I didn't. Well, to the to the Canadians, still a little bit. My sergeant was real solid, real dialed. But once I got to the British. Really where the line started was when they gave you shit, as long as you gave it back, the respect was there. If you could pick up the bodies, you could do the job, you could shoot and move, they respected you. And so you show up in the way that you that you work. And how many years were you serving over there? Uh, I only did six months over there. I got injured on my first deployment in Afghanistan. And what happened? Uh, we were with the British on an on-foot on foot operation that really went sideways, to be completely honest, and to not get into the nitty-gritty. But what happened was due to some of the things that happened and some of the things I'd seen and participated in, uh, I end up getting diagnosed in country with post-traumatic stress disorder and put on a laundry list of 11 different pharmaceuticals. Wow. And by the way, we're talking to Kelsey Sharon. Her book is now out. You should grab it. It's called Brass and Unity, One Woman's Journey Through the Hell of Afghanistan and Back. So what kind of pharmaceuticals? They said, well, she's having some PTSD. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so let's give her what? Oh, my God. Everything from antidepressants to antipsychotics to sleep meds, ups and downs. But here's the kicker and what most people don't get. They were giving that to me while I was in country running a machine gun. So they didn't, they didn't, they didn't bend I'll to check you, you out. I'll tell you one better. They didn't tell my staff I was on them. So had they noticed the mood changes? Uh, when I came back from the British operation, I was so drastically different. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I wasn't talking. I was just numb. Numb to the extent that I didn't, I didn't feel my own body. I was just there. So be, without the pharmaceuticals, how would you describe PTSD? PTSD is one of the... When you realize someone's wrong. uh, For me, I knew something was wrong the second the first explosion went off, and I I witnessed what I witnessed, and then we were doing body collection. It was, uh, I call it my light switch moment. A lot of listeners will understand that. When you have a traumatic incident, part of your brain shuts down. A wall goes down to protect you, if you will, to make sure that you can keep surviving. You go into that fight or flight, and you get stuck. And once you're stuck in that, you're now numb. You can't feel, and you have no empathy. And that's the kicker. When this stuff starts happening... And, like, you're Americans because you guys do rotations like crazy. You guys send your people home for, like, a month and then kick them back for another year, year and a half and wonder why they're coming home and committing suicide at the pace they are. And the divorce rate is over 94% for special operations. We don't look after our people, period. The people at the top, the leadership is such garbage that they don't pay attention to what the damage is doing when you stack that on top of tour after tour. And, you know, the special operators have explained it to me where – we have we are more conditioned to be able to do that mm-hmm. than the average, uh, the average recruit because mm-hmm. we get trained at a high level of mental and Absolutely. emotional training. So that's why when I would ask him how many tours, I don't know, sixteen, eighteen, mm-hmm. and I would say, how do you feel about? Oh, I'm okay because yeah. we're trained that way. Is that wrong? No, it's listen. I think. Uh, you know, a lot of the special operators reviewed this book for me. I have SEAL Team 6 guys. I've got Rangers. I've got Delta. I've got uh, SBS. I got them all. And these guys all say the same things to me because on my show, I have a show called the Brass and Unity Podcast. And I sit down and I talk to these people and I get them to tell me the hardest stories of their life. But the difference is at the end of the conversation, they go, damn, I never said that before. I never talked about that before. Thanks for holding space. And in saying that, we have these guys and these girls that are doing these operations, rotating, 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 and they can't go get help. Because if you get help, you're about to lose your entire family. They're going to drop you and take you away from your unit. Well, your unit is your family. 
though the the people to the left and right of you are the only people you care about you don't care about the president the politics that doesn't matter to you you want to leave with those guys you want to come back with the same amount of guys you want to hold them accountable but what happens is you rotate so quickly when you're doing your decompression. I can guarantee nine out of ten, none of these special operators are going to go, hey, how you doing? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm struggling with sleep. Uh, I'm really angry. Uh, I have no empathy. I can't eat. The second you say that, you're done. It's done. Good luck getting back with your unit. So you would recommend putting a therapist maybe with these units, like a, a military psychiatrist with these units where they could feel to go in and out of that tent without going in and out of the unit? Yeah, because here's... Because you do need a resource. You absolutely need a resource. But here's the thing. The the military, especially in Canada, United States, let's just say NATO in general, okay? The military does not allow different types of medical intervention. Their solution to every problem, and like I said at the Senate subcommittee in Canada and Parliament about psychedelics... <laughs> CBT, which is a conventional talk therapy, and pharmaceutical intervention are an acknowledged failure across the board, left, right, and center. And you can say that because it's not 22 a day anymore. It's up to 44 a day. Suicides. Absolutely. So you can't tell me that the traditional methods that we're providing our soldiers and our service members are working. They're not. If they were working, people wouldn't be taking their lives on a daily basis at the pace that they are. Can you explain why somebody who fights uh, so hard for a cause and to stay alive when that cause stops, would would rationalize taking their own life? You know, I wrote in this book, there's a thing, a, a person I call the watcher, and it's the voice that's in your head. And I can tell you right now, that will beat you down. And when you come home and you're on all of these pharmaceutical medications, you're not connected to anyone. The civilian population, number one, doesn't want to hear about it. They do not care. They have no idea what you're actually doing overseas. And then they have the audacity to thank you for your service. If you thanked us for what, if you knew what we actually did, not saying all of it, but if you knew some of it, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that thank you for your service would be the, the response. Would be enough. Well, I don't, not even enough. I don't know if it would be the response. Because the reality is the civilian population thinks they have a somewhat understanding of what goes on in these wars. And they don't. They have a talking head at the White House that says, we got bin Laden. Well, we could have got bin Laden. We knew where he was in 20 and 21. I mean, and in 2001. We knew where he was the whole time. But you can't take him out because then there's no justification to go in and fight a war now, is there? So a lot of things happen. And like I said before, rich men wars are fought by, by young men, right? These guys up here are talking heads. So you feel as though the American military, from what you know, could have got him in 2001? No, I'm, because we made I'm a, not we just... made a bad move not putting the 82nd down there right away. Yeah. And allowing, yeah. But I don't think that was intentional. Do you? Well, I mean, I know enough people that know enough things that know enough stuff. So I just go off of my references. And they think, yeah, because uh, I think it was made us look terrible that he lasted as long as he did. Don't you? Listen. Some of these SEAL team Delta guys that I know are some of the most brilliant, brilliant, absolutely terrifying men on the face of the earth, and including the JTF-2, which hold the longest shot in the world, and those are Canadians. I'm telling you right now, if these men wanted to find them, they would have found them. If they wanted him found, right? But you can't fight a war if the person that caused the war is dead within the first year. What's the justification to going in? What's carpet bombing going to do? You can't justify it. If the guy that's responsible yeah, is dead. I don't think anybody wanted a prolonged war in Afghanistan. You know, I don't think anybody wanted a prolonged war, but I know that the moneymakers sure did enjoy it. Who made money? Who made money? Military industrial complex. Come on. Do we really need to look back at this and go, how are these wars still going? How are we still fighting? We're not learning from a damn thing. The only people that are paying the price right now are the 18, 19, and 20-year-olds that started this and, and served 
righteously to protect their nation because that's what we were told. And we were told when we came home, we would be looked after and that everything would be good. Really? Because you know what Canada's doing right now and has been doing since 2019? Instead of giving people treatment, they've been offering them medical assisted in dying. They will pick up the phone and say, I need help for a traumatic brain injury. And on the other end of the line, they're going, how about made? How about we help you end your life? Well, that's insane. Uh, when we come back, what you are doing that mm-hmm. is working, mm-hmm. and I want to hear more. Absolutely. Uh, Kelsey Sharon's here, combat veteran, artillery gunner in the Canadian military, who served in Afghanistan in 09 with Canada, America, Britain, uh, our, our team, basically. Pick up her book, Brass and Unity. Back with more with Kelsey in a moment. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. All right, Kelsey Sharon's here. She's a combat veteran, and her book is now out, Brass Unity, One Woman's Journey Through the Hell of Afghanistan and Back. Kelsey, so you had uh, PTSD. You're still dealing with it. You feel like you're 90-plus percent there, and you give a lot of credit to psychedelics. Absolutely. Psychedelics are going to be the thing that's going to save this generation of veterans. And Aaron Rodgers always talks about it, and he says a lot of military people take it. Describe what they are for you. So for me, I work with an organization called Heroic Hearts Project. It's run by a former Army Ranger named Jesse Gould, and it is a 5013C in America that takes veterans outside of the country to go experience a psychedelic-assisted therapy. It can, um, It is a combination of everything from integration on the front end, meaning a type of counseling and intention setting and preparation. Then you go and sit in the actual ceremony. And then the following up is integration on the back end to make sure that we've got, we've got you. We're helping you integrate the lessons you've learned. And, and really what it does is give you a community, but it gives you a moment to breathe. But when you actually take the psychedelics, mm-hmm. what does it do for you out after that moment's over when you're no longer uh, then it's no longer in your body. So it, it very much depends on the psychedelic that you're sitting with, whatever the plant-based medicine is. My choice of psychedelic that works really well with me is ayahuasca, uh, psilocybin, and cannabis. Psilocybin is uh, mushrooms for for some of you who don't know that. Ayahuasca is a form of DMT that comes from Peru. It is the chacruna leaf and the uh, ayavine, and they're mixed together in a brew, and they're given through a tribe setting. It is something that is done with a a shaman or a maestro or a mistra, if you will, and you're in a setting with up to, I know, 15 people in a yurt or a maloka. And what you're doing is you're ingesting a medicine that allows the medicine goes through you and works through you. It shows you everything you need to see, not what you want to see. It may put all of your traumas in front of you and show you how you're going to work through them, or it may show you things that you need to heal with that you didn't realize were a problem. It's very hard to describe a psychedelic experience like that because everyone is so different and so personal. And I don't like to tell the fantastical stories that happen because if you do, it's going to color people's expectations. And if you have an expectation, most of the time they're never going to be fully met. So when you feel as though when you take them and when you come off them, you have revelations about yourself. It's it, Yeah, you have these things called downloads. You These moments of introspection that come through after the ceremonies that allow your brain to open up. The beautiful thing about psilocybin and ayahuasca is they lay uh, new groundwork. So psilocybin is like slapping snow down on top of your neurons. And it, it fills in those ruts that... That cycle, that that negative talk, that constant feedback loop that tells you you're not good enough, that you should kill yourself, that you're not worth living. It basically slaps things down on top of those neurons and helps you to create new pathways in the brain. So it's not like you're just getting high and sitting there. You're physically helping your brain heal on a neurological level. 
And you've seen the results in your own life, and you've seen it with your friends. It is. I've literally, okay, so from 2009 to 2019, I was on pharmaceutical medication with talk therapy, EMDR, you name it, I did it. Grounding, journaling, art therapy, you name it, I did it all. The only things that worked in there were art therapy, some CBT, but it only got me to a point where I plateaued. At that point, fortunately enough, somebody saw that I was struggling, and that was another Army Ranger, uh, one of the owners of Combat Flip Flops, Griff, Griff saw me on my podcast, kind of leaned in and said, hey, you doing okay? And I gave the traditional, I'm great. Thanks for asking. And then he goes, yeah, let's try this again. And I broke. I absolutely broke because I said, look, I'm, I'm stuck. I don't know how to get further, but this is getting worse. Uh, what had happened was I had an undiagnosed traumatic brain injury at that point. And he said, look, I'm going to get you in touch with Heroic Heart, Proje- Heroic Heart Projects, and we're going to help you with this. 30 days later, I was on a plane to go sit with ayahuasca with a bunch of operators who were Purple Heart recipients, Blackwater, SEALs, Rangers, the top of the top. And I was this tiny woman that walked in. And what happened wow. was I was welcomed in. Wow. Uh, you can see it. find out more about Kelsey in a brand-new book, Brass and Unity, One Woman's Journey Through the Hell of Afghanistan and Back. And boy, is she back. Uh, Kelsey, <laughs> great to meet you. Uh, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks and for let's me. stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. All Thank right. you. Keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.